Doesn't this room look like, um, I don't know, like Noah's Ark? And things went really bad. <laughs> things went really bad in the Ark, and it just didn't work out. So we, we cut their heads off and mounted them. The baboon is the ugliest animal in the room. <laughs> Hideous creature. I, forgive me if I told you this last time, but I had a showdown with a baboon in Kenya. No, it was in Kenya. It was outside Nairobi, and, and it was, uh, there was this whole troop. I was, I was touring with friends. The, they had this animal orphanage that's near the big wildlife refuge. And, uh, and they invaded, a whole troop of baboons invaded the place, running amok like bikers, or like, uh, like, like, like a gang. <laughs> and they were on the bird cages, trying to reach the birds. They were crazy. And, uh, and, I, and I, so I saw the people running it, all these Africans, trying to drive them out. And I got to get in on this. So I, I jumped in. It was a big adrenaline rush. And I'm chasing this one big baboon. He was bigger than that. And uh, he gets up on this tree above me, like that high right there, and he turns around and starts swearing at me in baboon with, <laughs> with fangs. They got these big canines. They're vicious. And he's like all muscular and, uh, and with fangs. Hideous, ugly creature. And I want to back down. And he want to back down. So we're just staring at each other. He's like swearing, ah, and showing fangs. I'm doing it back. Ah, come on. And... Um, and I'm like, oh, man, what am I going to do now? <laughs> and and um, I saw in my peripheral vision their reaction to the Kenyans picking up rocks. Clearly, they know what. They've been hit with rocks. So I pretended. I didn't have a rock. But I, 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 I uh, pretended to pick, pick one up. You know, I drop, pick one up. And that, and that baboon goes from fangs to, to Oh, he, he, he wasn't pointing, but he went from, ah, to, oh, oh, you cheated, you. <laughs> it really happened just like that. I'm not kidding you. He had a complete attitude change. Can't imagine how much better it would have been if I drew a gun, right? But he found somewhere else to be and uh, another way to get there. I kind of had him cornered up that tree, I thought. And then... Uh, He's going to jump on my head and bite me, but once he saw that rock, or, or the gesture, totally faked him out. My hand was empty. I went, sucker, and he, <laughs> I've had some animal adventures. I was very grateful to my human brothers who took me shooting today. I'm not always treated so well, especially in Florida, crazy Ryan Gitman and those guys. Tell me, get up one morning, we're going to go kill hogs. Okay, fine. I get up in, in the dark, and we drive a long ways, get out, and, and then get on a swamp buggy. I didn't even pay attention to the fact there's no guns. There's no guns here. I didn't pay attention until they turn the dogs loose, and the dogs are engaged in, in this big hog, and there's all this craziness. And then they tell me, you got to run in there and tackle them and stab them. Oh, no. yeah. And I go, you got to be kidding. I'm going to run in there and tackle a boar, which after I killed him, we weighed, he's, he weighed as much as me with tusks and everything. And it seemed like a cheap shot. He's, dis, he's busy with dogs. You know, I'm hitting him from the side, and I, and I, I get him down, and I'm like, now what? And they throw me this knife, this cheesy, like, flea market Rambo <laughs> knife. 
and, I'm, and I plunged it into his heart. I don't know where his heart is. And then the blade broke off. <laughs> Snap. It was cheap. And I don't know what, maybe all my, I don't know, Tarzan movies or something. I'm thinking, one stab in the heart, and it's over. It's not over. <laughs> not over. He's mad now. Really, really mad. And, and I just opened up a hot faucet of blood spewing all in my face. And I was thinking, what worst thing could I do? And I wasn't, what now? And all I could do was hold on. Hang on, he's getting weaker and weaker, and finally he died. I stood up from that. I stood up, I blew over my face. I'm spitting it out. And, and, and those rednecks were like, huh? They're up on that buggy going, huh? Yeah. I could be a little out there, but they were further out than me. Oh, wow, man. Yeah, that was thrilling. Thank you. I mean, uh, you've got to get personal with a creature who is not known for good hygiene. Right? They're, they're pegs. You're going to wrestle them? Uh, that's smarter. Come in here, I see uh, Mo just drop them, throw a little corn out, and pop. <laughs> that's... That works for me. <laughs> I killed a big moose up in Maine. It was in my neighborhood. It wasn't far, a few hills over. I crested this hill with my dog. I was just praying. I'm out there praying, right? Just seeking the Lord. And then I came into the clearing, and there he was. And I thought, oh, no. And I, I'm ready to run, climb a tree or something. And then I realized the moose didn't even know I'm here. I'm like, hey, moose! And he's not even moving or anything. And I knew about this, uh, this parasite that we have. It knocks out what little walnut-sized brain they have. They're a crazy animal. They really are. They're aggressive and crazy, and they'll, uh, they'll, they'll charge at you, they're really, especially the bull. And I'm like, man, that's pretty weird. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking around thinking, that's just really strange. You must have the parasite. So I pull out my cell phone, and I, I call a friend who works for a fishing game, and they put a ranger on the phone, and I describe what I'm looking at. And he goes, look around there. Just look around, and does it look like he's never left this area for a long time, like everything green is gone, and there's just moose manure everywhere? I went, That's exactly what I'm looking at. <laughs> and it's like an invisible fence, right? He, like, he thinks he's a prisoner. And, then, and the ranger goes, yeah, that's, that's brain worm. Yeah, that moose is just dying. It's a terrible way. And soon the smaller predators will, you know, just start taking pieces until he's infected. And then, you know, he'll, he'll it's a terrible way. He goes, put him down if you can. I go, yeah, no problem. <laughs> so I, I hang up and I realize, oh, man, all I got is this pistol. That ain't going to work. So I call up another friend a couple hills over. And I said, George, do you have a rifle? George, he goes, yeah, I got this old lever action 30-30, like the, you know, the rifleman type of thing. And I go, wow, can I borrow it? He said, sure. And I said, well, I'll hike down. I told him this road, I'll meet you at this road. I get down there and I get the rifle. Have you fired this ever? He goes, not really. And I go, well, this, I racked one, it fired well. So I, I head up back up the hill, get up there to that moose. And I know this is going to sound stupid. I started feeling really bad for him. Well, you know, I'm trying to put him down. I'm going to euthanize him, right? Plus, I don't want him running amok in the neighborhood, and, you know, 
People die running, you know, hitting them with a car. We lost our good friend of mine, our sound man at the church, died with a moose collision. It's kind of common and uh, too common. So anyway, I, I'm going to shoot. I'm going to do a service, but I'm not going to enjoy it. So sure enough, I, I, I rack one and I get over where I'm able to shoot him in the heart sideways. And he's just like, Duh. he's gone. And I shoot him, bang, right through the heart. And then he wheels around to look at me. So then I rack another one. I rack another one. I laid a bead on his head, and then we just stand there, looking at each other. I start feeling really bad for him. He's kind of looking at me like, "Did you just shoot me in the heart, dude? Did you just shoot me?" Sort of looking like I'm like, "I'm sorry, Moose, but I don't know, I'm feeling kind of bad for him." I started tearing up. I'm like, this ain't sporting. He didn't do nothing to me. It's not like vengeance. I wish you had. I'd feel better about it. <laughs> and then, and then I'm, I'm looking at him. I don't want to. I don't want to shoot him again. I'm just kind of my finger on the trigger, and he starts tipping real slow. Oh, no. And then he hits, boom, a couple kicks, and it's over. He's dead. But what? What? Honestly, listen to me. Um, it is unbelief and rebellion's got all through Proverbs and all through the scriptures. The term. Fool is used. I think we mentioned that this morning. Fool. What is a fool? Not someone who is intellectually deficient, like the world means. When God uses the word fool, he means somebody who is morally deficient. And moral deficiency is like brain worm on a, on a big... I'm, I'm thinking, man, big, powerful, monstrous animal brought down by a microscopic... A microbe. Tragic, because sin will make you irrational. Sin will make you crazy. Makes us so profoundly foolish. I think it's epitomized by the meme a buddy sent me. I'll, I'll give you the tamer version. Imagine there's a 99.97 chance that you won't poop your pants, but you're forced to wear a diaper just in case. And now imagine you have to wear a diaper to keep your neighbors from pooping their pants. <laughs> oh, this is the whole mask issue, ladies and gentlemen. It's that lunacy. It's, it's, it's the world's going completely crazy. Do you know Deuteronomy 28, 28? Deuteronomy 28, 28 is, it, it, the 20th chapter of Deuteronomy is the place where God warns through Moses. The people of Israel, the covenant people, warns them, if you violate this covenant. All right, if, you, if you honor this covenant, here's the degree, the degree to which you will be blessed. God promises blessing, and he's descriptive in that for 14 verses. And then he goes on way, way longer in the but if you violate that covenant. God goes on and on about the horrible things that will happen and how, how bad it's going to be. And he, in the 28th verse, he goes, and I will smite you with madness, blindness, and astonishment of heart. That, young men and young women, is what is happening to your world. It's what's happening to your nation. Your leaders and the general public, your peers, have been struck stupid, profoundly stupid, irrational. Madness is the only explanation, I'm telling you, it's the kind of madness that God sends 
is a form of judgment. Do you know the number one killer of your age group is right now? The number one killer in America of young men and women, 18 to 42, fentanyl. One thing, fentanyl. Fentanyl pouring over our southern border. I don't want to get all political enough then much, but it is madness, utter madness, that has over 300 of your peers dying every single day. It's the number one killer. Add to that all the rest of the drug epidemic, the, the awful plague, and you will have to acknowledge that the world has gone crazy. They've freaked out about a cold virus that is dangerous to some people. There's no denying that. You've got other health issues. A respiratory virus can certainly kill you. But the numbers don't justify their actions. Never have. It's insane. But where did that insanity come from? I submit to you that it's a judgment of God. The very God who said, I will smite you with madness, it has done so. It is utter madness. You Cubans know. It's utter madness. <laughs> madness for anybody to look at what produced the greatest wealth and the greatest prosperity and power. And what made that happen in the history of the whole world? That one nation, they want to act like, oh, we just struck it rich. We're just lottery winners. No. No, actually, a biblical ethic that valued humanity, a biblical ethic that made honesty happen, created a climate and freedom where prosperity could happen, and to now have people say, no, we need to, no, socialism's smart. It's so nice and it's awesome. Socialism is like social media, and that's awesome. That's good. <laughs> that's the depth of their thinking. That is insane. That is madness. Would you agree? Yeah. Madness. To look at what has only ever caused poverty and suffering everywhere it's been tried and say, that's what we should do. Yeah, we should do that. <laughs> and, and, and yet that's what's going on. It's madness. Those uh, interviews, I'm sure you've seen some of those, sort of campus reform and other organizations doing a sort of man-on-the-street interview with college students, going, so, if I want to be a woman, can I? Can I identify myself as a woman? Um, yeah, th that's fine. Okay, what if I want to be a Chinese woman? Well, no, um, I don't, I don't, they can't even give an instant answer. They, they go, well, I, I, I don't know. Some of them are like, I, I don't know, I guess, if, okay, fine, you can be a Chinese woman. Okay, what if I want to be a seven-foot-tall Chinese woman? Can I be? Can I identify? Um, huh? You, they have a, a, a crisis because they don't have an answer. Like, no, that's stupid. That's insane. You have a mental problem. No. No, you cannot identify. You can't, you can't just identify as another gender any more than you can identify as another species. I can't go, I'm a baboon. Yeah, that's what I am. I self-identify as a Batman. The mockery of this is great. You see the one, uh, the British uh, rapper, uh, black guy, who, was, who announced publicly, I'm going to break the world record deadlift for women. 
whilst identifying as a woman, and he, he, it's, a, it's a deadlift number that wouldn't even qualify in a competition, but he utterly shattered the women's deadlift record while self-identifying as a woman, mocking, just pointing out how foolish this is, how insane it is. Women's sports, women's rights are being violated. It's insane. It's absolute madness. How in the world can these people talk about, oh, we're just going to follow the science while they deny the science of biology. They deny psychology. They deny all the sciences and believe fairy tales. It's madness. I'm just saying to you, brainworm, sin, sin. It makes you profoundly stupid. It creates a bias. It creates a brain dysfunction that is worse than anything. It's the kind of brain dysfunction that causes your whole generation to be engaged in pharmacia. And that, and that is the sorcery warned about in the New Testament. Sorcery. Man. And this conversation this morning with Daniel about Daniel, the Daniel. It was just uh, New Year's. Eve, preaching on the statement from Daniel, uh, chapter 1, but Daniel purposed in his heart, not to defile himself with the king's meat. Daniel purposed in his heart. You know what I found? Something I had never seen before. That the word in our English Bible translated purposed in his heart is a word that you can translate into English, rehearsed. It wasn't a Big deal for Daniel because he this is what he'd always done. What he'd rehearsed was being true to God. And as part of the covenant people, honoring the will of God in the kosher diet. His refusal to defile himself with the king's meat was something, it was like, it's like, uh, it's like training with a gun. You know, what you do, what you train to do, it becomes automatic. It's rehearsed. You just keep rehearsing. And you get good, and things become automatic. That event for Daniel was automatic. Daniel purposed in his heart. He rehearsed that matter. Wisdom. Wisdom is agreeing with God. If you want a good working definition of wisdom, it is agreeing with God, seeing it his way. Wisdom is agreeing with God. Therefore, <laughs> foolishness is best understood as disagreeing with God, thinking you're smarter, arguing with God. Only a madman would do that. Only a fool would do that. Arguing with the Most High. Utter foolishness. Wisdom, agreeing with God. Foolishness, disagreeing, thinking you're smarter than God. Having an ongoing argument with him and insisting that you're right. And he's wrong. Hey, I was thinking about, because uh, I haven't started yet. I guess you know, that was all just, <laughs> we're just visiting, okay? I, I hadn't actually started. So I was thinking I'd start with uh, a poem. Amanda thinks I ought to, so I thought, well, all right, how about a poem? <laughs> Let me, the Apostle Paul would write, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh, that God took on human form. Great is the mystery of godliness. Those who were around him just kept going through mind-blowing discovery. 
right? You think you know someone. Like they thought they knew him. And then he does something like just rebuke the wind and the waves. And the wind and waves. Creation obeys him. And they find themselves going, what? who does that? What, what manner of man is this? What kind of guy does that? I mean, they're like hysterical. What kind of guy tells the wind what to do? So it was uh, meditating on that when uh, I wrote it like this. Bear with me. And I don't know who's telling it. It's one of them telling it, okay? We really thought we knew him. As we answered his call, we followed. <laughs> A mismatched band of men were we, sailing off into tomorrow. I never knew a man to work so hard and, and spend himself like him. And then at last I saw him finally lay down, as all light was growing dim, and the darkness came, as did the wind. And that lake became a beast that howled and roared and reached for us, thirteen mortals for its feast. And all I believed now seemed like a lie. And nothing made any sense as waves of terror swept over my soul, each one even more intense. And I felt my way to the back of that boat, to where I'd seen him lay. And so human was he, that in his fatigue, despite the pounding waves, he slept. Like a man unaware there was any reason for fear. Like one who knew just where he was going and what he was doing here. But then this angry thought broke through my fear as my panic reached its peak. It erupted out as this hostile question. I couldn't help but speak. We're going to die, I cried out loud to the one who led us there. You said let's go over, but we're going under. And how is it that you don't care? And at first, he said nothing, but seemed to be struggling with a mind not fully awakened. I mean, straight from his dream, right into our nightmare. But still, he wasn't the least bit shaken. Now he stood up, and he steadied himself. With one hand, he held to the ropes, like, like holding the reins of a stallion. He rode that rising and falling boat, and one hand in the ropes and one hand in the air, while we cowered along the sides. He confronted the beast that caused us to cower, so frightened, so terrified. <clears throat> and the words that he spoke, they were not a request. And they were not a victim's plea. His words were not louder than the howl of the wind or the roar of Galilee. But his words carried power, <clears throat> undeniable power. That even the force of the wind had to flee. Mightier than the thunder of great waters. Mightier than the breakers of the sea. He spoke to that storm like it was a dog. And his command muzzled its jaw. And it fled with its tail tucked in its legs. As we huddled in silence and awe. And everything was quiet. Upon hearing his words, the water and the earth and the sky... None were as speechless or silent as we 
who just witnessed this with our eyes, this man who took lordship over nature, for whom nature humbly complied, then turned his gaze upon us little men just beginning to slowly rise. Why were you frightened, he asked us. How is it that you have no faith? We had no answer to give him. Looking back, we can only say we were afraid of all that was against us because we did not realize what manner of man it was that we followed and trusted with our very lives. We had no answer for his question of us, but we had questions of our own. And one of us finally spoke those words that still echo in my soul. What manner of man is he? That is still more than I can even know. (laughs) The end. Before I go to the text, I thought, you know, we just put out, uh, do you have any questions? Is there anything from this morning that you wanted clarified or anything that wasn't clear? Or some other subject before we jump into the actual sermon, teaching. Going once? You don't want to know about my boobs or anything else? (laughs) That was awkward. That was so awkward. Some of you had so much fun with that. My childhood trauma. Yoga, things were clear enough. There was no big question. Okay, go to John chapter 13 with me. It was actually Eva... Uh, Eva asked me a question we talking uh, before supper this afternoon that sent me in this direction. John chapter 13, last supper. John 13, verse 1. I want to boast to you of Christ, our King. I want to brag about him. I want to just go on and on about who he is and what a wonder, what a... What a what a, what a hero, what a, what a stud Christ is. What a, what a lover, what a warrior, um, genius. Everything about him makes him win our hearts. It's who we are. And by the way, just like in that, in that poem, in that story, we know what it's like to be afraid of all that is against us. Our world's against us. The whole insane world is against us. It's like the sci-fi concept of an, a, a zombie apocalypse, right? I hate how they use the word. Cause, I mean, the Greek word apocalypse just means the revealing. But they've connected it to doom. And uh, so, you know, zombie doom, zombie... What a weird concept. Leave it to the insane world to come up with a concept whereby... Resurrection's a bad thing, right? Because you're not like resurrected right. You're like ha- the undead. That's just, it's, 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 it's foolish. It violates all science. It's just insane. And yet it's an obsession, isn't it? But we live that reality. Why do we have the antidote for the zombies? Having been zombies ourselves, right? 
We have the cure. We've, we've come to experience the cure. But they, they don't want to hear. There's a lot against you. And you are, in fact, hated. Lord Jesus said you would be. You know the Apostle Paul, a guy so captured, um, uh, Saul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, the worst of all, the zombie madman, right? He's the worst. He's arch enemy of Christ. If, if it's either him or Caiaphas, right? Even worse than, than Pilate or any of those characters was Saul of Tarsus until Christ revealed himself to him. And then he spends the rest of his life going, I just want to know him. I want to, I want to know him. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. I want to be hated with him. I want everybody that hates him to hate me. I don't want anyone who hates him to like me. Paul wrote this. I want to know him and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Philippians chapter 2, right? Chapter 3, Philippians 3. He said, I, I've counted everything loss. Everything is, everything's nothing. Everything is trash compared to knowing him. He wasn't even talking about heaven. He wasn't talking about everything in this world is trash compared to heaven, which is true. He was like, everything in this world is trash compared to him. There's a man whose allegiance is to his king. His king captured his heart. Here in John chapter 13, Last Supper, verse 1, John, who's, who's the guy whose heart has been completely captured by Christ, he was, they were all young adults like you. He was the youngest of the young adults picked by the Lord to be a student. Probably still in his teens. But by, oh, may I mention to you, as a side note, not to be a tweenie. A tweenie. Isn't that a term that moms use to describe kids that are in between certain stages? There's too many in the world, in the zombies around you. They got no divisions. They don't understand. You are either male or female, right? There's no tween. You guys all know that, right? According to God, even somebody who's in some kind of confusion is one or the other. Even a eunuch is a male eunuch, right? Or, or a female eunuch. You're a male or female. There is no confusion with God. Your creator has the solution if you are confused. Don't be a tweenie, somewhere between the two. It's okay to be a gentler man who does interior design or hair. <laughs> All right? You don't have to be on the other end of the Mr. Scale where you know, me and the Jose's are. <laughs> there's, there's another end to it where you're just kind of nuts. You don't have to be. It's okay to be a gentleman. It's okay. That, but just get on the Mr. Scale and know what you are. You're a mister. Okay? And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to be... I, all right, I just, there's no in-between. There is no in-between. Check this one out. Don't be a tweenie. Either be a boy or a man. But don't be, okay, I'm a, a man when it's convenient. <laughs> and a boy. When I'm being held accountable, I'm just a kid, right? you you got to pick a, you, and one of the things you've been ripped off from, culturally, is a rite of passage. 
a rite of passage where it's supposed to be your dad that ushers you over a line, a threshold, and it tells you, from this day forward, you are a man. That's important. It's supposed to come. It's supposed to be, for the, for the Jew, it would be a bar mitzvah. Unless you're a girl, it would be a bat mitzvah. And that just means son of the commandments, daughter of the commandments. You prove you know what God wants. You answer the questions and go, you're accountable to God. Now, you are a man. You are a woman. You're no longer a child. You have passed this age of accountability. And they would honor your sovereignty. Even if you're, even if you're still, you're a man. You're living at home. But now you're a man in the house. You've been like a man. You're a man. And your dad would not, in those cultures, knock you back over the threshold and go, I take it back, you're a boy. And then, like, overrule you, right? That's kind of a big deal. I want you to remember this. When you have children, some of you do already, <clears throat> it's important that we provide that identity. Let them know. You've crossed this line. Now you choose. And you're, you're accountable for your choices. Don't be... The, the, the crazy world around you, they never become men. They live the rest of their life as much as they can in a, a virtual reality, in a simulator, with a, with a joystick. When you were a man, you put the toy down and you pick up a tool, you pick up a weapon, and you do real stuff, get away from the, simu the simulators to train you. What was play for when we were boys? To get us ready for real stuff. To get us ready for war. Animal babies play. <laughs> they're all frisky. And they're, and they're <laughs> developing important skills to help them survive in a war between predator and prey. By God's design, we play. But play can't be a way of life when you become a man. We play with kids when we become a man. We, we stoop to play with them. You understand what I'm saying? Don't be legalistic, but you understand what I'm saying? Put the stupid toys away. When the Apostle Paul, in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, when he goes, when I was a child, I thought, I understood, I spoke as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. <laughs> this childish things, right? You put your stuffed animals away for your kid, right? You want to bring them back out for that, but don't be, don't be talking to them. <laughs> Putting away childish things, the things of childhood. Listen, there are no in-betweens. Don't be a tweeny boy. You, you go, all right, I'm going to be a man. Be one. And men are decisive. Men do what they're supposed to do, their duty. Boys do what they want. Yeah, chew on that one. <laughs> Boys do what they want. Boys only know what they want. They only know what they feel. <laughs> I won't. I won't rant anymore on that. But, but one other thing. Don't be a tweeny. You are all of you in this room, either single or married. There is no in-between in this book. Even if you're single and engaged, you're still single, right? Until you're married. You don't have any of the benefits <coughs> and the benefits of, of <laughs> the covenant. And if you don't have the benefits of the covenant, 
then you've got no business engaging in foreplay. You know, you're not licensed to play. So, so no, no foreplay. If you don't engage in foreplay, you won't play. So if you, listen, here's my practical advice. If you are engaged, or if you're approaching that, you, you know what, you may be a single person in love. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, this, this sad dude, this is a sad folk singer from my, my neighborhood. The title song of his album was, I Always Fall in Love Alone. <laughs> <laughs> you may be two people in love, but you're still two single people in love. So you got to remember what you are and then act like what you are. If you're, I, I, I would be this practical. If you have at least a date and a commitment to enter that covenant, and then and only then should you then, and this is important, know the difference between affection and foreplay. That's, that's practical right there. I mean, that's worth the price of admission, I'm telling you. <laughs> know, know the difference between an affectionate peck of two lips of people that are making plans for a wedding versus the locking and wrestling with tongues and, and revving engines that... <laughs> Uh, that aren't supposed to be put in gear and go anywhere because you don't have a license. Amen. Is that practical or what? <laughs> Could this old dad get any more helpful? <laughs> I'm just saying that don't be a tweenie. Know who you are at the season of life that you're in. Live according to what you are. Don't be a tweenie. Don't be opening the presents before Christmas, as it were. Don't be, don't be provoking each other to sin. No, protect each other. And uh, that's enough of that, okay? I'm trying to remember what the point was. Oh, it was John. That John was a teen, right? But John was not a tween. John had had his bar mitzvah. And John is now a disciple of the Son of God. And John, teenage John, the young man, writes for us as an old man what he discovered as a young man. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. John speaks from experience. Because, man, he loved us to the end. He loved us all the way out of here. He knew he was leaving. He knew that his hour was coming and that he should depart. He's like, you know what he did? Supper being ended... The devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, John goes, Judas. I can hear it the way he writes, 
Simon's son, not the good Judas, the bad Judas. <laughs> Judas. This is John, who, um, <laughs> in the previous chapter, after Judas goes, why was this waste allowed? <laughs> this should have been sold. And the money given to the poor doesn't anyone care about the poor. What a punk, what a faker. What a sickening, virtue-signaling, liberal punk. And he's, he's like, I, ju I just can't be quiet any longer. This, was, this, this waste was allowed. Doesn't anyone care about the poor? And, and John writes, this he said, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and a treasurer. So apparently, by the time John writes John chapter 12, and after Judas hung himself, they checked the books, and they realized, man, that guy was cooking the books. That punk was ripping off this organization. <laughs> the only time Judas ever went and gave anything to the poor was when the Lord sent him. But there he is at the Last Supper, acting like, well, it wasn't the Last Supper, it was the, uh, in Bethany, but he's acting like, more concerned about the poor than God in the flesh at the table. <laughs> yeah. You've seen people doing their little virtue signaling foolishness. It's the spirit of Antichrist. It's Judas. It's everywhere. Even the professing Christians. What about the poor? Oh, doesn't anyone care for the poor? What about the black man? Doesn't anyone care? For the, and, and that's a bunch of homosexuals. The whole BLM movement is a bunch of homosexuals hijacking the plight of the black man in this country. That's what the whole BLM movement is, Marxism, and it's just a bunch. You go to rural areas, get outside of Miami, find out who shows up for the BLM riot protest. A bunch of lesbian women screaming mad, huge, butched out hairdos, and they're vicious. They're like vicious, crazy, crazy bunch. There's not a black person among them. It's, this is Maine. We're, 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 we're black deficient. So, you know, when, when John writes in chapter 13, Judas, having already... The devil, having put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. He, and he says it again, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he was come from God, and he went to God. It's like, you know what he did? Knowing this, knowing it was time to leave, knowing he came from God, and it was going back to him. You know what he did? Verse 4, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe the, them with a towel wherewith he was girded. And there's more of the story, right? Interaction with Peter and all of that. <laughs> Look at this. Verse 12. Skip down to verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments, he was set down again do you understand what just took place? Let me describe this whole scene for you. 
The t- it wasn't like Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper with everybody conveniently on the other side of the table looking at us, facing us. They didn't sit in chairs, and they weren't in a big, long table all looking toward the middle. They were in a big horseshoe arrangement, the triclinium, and they reclined on couches or rugs. But in a banquet hall like this one, each couch would be elevated. Your feet are out, away from the table, and you're propped up, mostly up on your, if you're not sitting, you know, like an Indian style, as we say, you're propped up on your left arm, and you're, and you're eating. That's how they did it. And in the arrangement of the triclinium, one end of the horseshoe was the lowest place of honor. The other end of the horseshoe was the highest place of honor. Second place in on the high end is the place where the host of the feast reclined. You know what the inside of the horseshoe was for? Well, see, that was for slaves. That was for slaves. Slaves to come in and continue to supply the table, refill their, their glasses, to refill their dishes. Slaves. Well, there were no slaves present. There were none. And none of the guys at the table <laughs> who had a perpetual contest going about who's the greatest, about rank, just like every kid in the playground, trying to establish their place. The disciples were doing it for three and a half years, awkwardly, away from the Lord. You know, I'm not greatest. No, you're not. Yeah, I'm, I'm the greatest. He's making their case. And they're like, what are you guys talking about? Are you talking about who's the greatest again? And he taught them things that they didn't hear. They, they didn't compute about greatness and being a servant. And, and many of, I suppose, he's going to give them his final lesson on this right here and tell them, you call me Master and Lord. That's right there in the 13th verse. You know what I just did to you? You call me Master and Lord. and You say, well, for so I am. And if I then, your Lord and your Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Apparently I, I say to you, what was that, the Ebonics one? For real, for real. Barely, <laughs> barely. So if we're going to do the Urban Bible, for real, for real, I say to you. No, for real, for real. I say to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither he that sent him greater than he, uh, neither, is he neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. You know these things, happy are you if you do them. So I, you can go, his getting up and washing their feet was just him saying, can you just be servants like me? I'm serving you. Follow my example. It's more than that. It's more. Listen to me. He left the seat of honor, the host of the feast, got up and took off his clothes and laid them aside. He laid aside his garments to pick up a towel and put that on and to base him. Dress like a slave and do what the slave does. But then when he's done serving, he returns the towel, the basin, and puts his clothes back on and takes his place. Young men and young women, I am telling you that what he did was more than just give him an example of servitude and servant leadership. What he did was indicative of what he had done. Knowing that he came from God and he's going to God, knowing that he came from heaven and was leaving, he left the table. 
It did symbolically the same thing. Just as I mentioned this morning, he took off, he took off and laid aside attributes of his divinity. Like omnipresence, he's in one place at a time. Omnipotence! He made himself weak and mortal human. Human like us, human enough to die. He made himself ignorant, like every one of us. Like all babies. He wasn't faking, he wasn't pretending to be a baby. And then when Mary and Joseph are looking, he's cleaning the whole house, changing his own diaper, and praying the high priestly prayer from John 17 with his little bitty hands. You know, he was a real baby. He wasn't pretending. He was a real genuine human with our limitations. He gave himself no advantage. He divested. He emptied himself. I'm telling you, as one, if we could just clear the whole slate, if we could wipe clean back to factory settings, he did. To from that place, learn, learn his own word, learn his own identity, learn his own mission, come to that place of full consciousness of who he is and why he's here. When he began, when he began his public ministry at 30, it, it is amazing, it's, it's overwhelming to consider that what he did in just laying them aside, but then able to put them all back and take his place. He said in the Olivet Discourse, you've all probably heard this, speaking of the day of his return, he said, no man knows the day or the hour. He said, but the Father only. Do you understand the implications of that one statement? That he has just admitted to having ceased to be, as a man, omniscient. There is something he can say he does not know. He does the not knowing just like us and lived out faith. He lived out trust. He did what he calls us to do. There is no one like him. There's nobody like Christ. There is no one who's ever done what he did. There's nobody who humbled himself to the degree that he did because nobody had so far to come down from as he did. All right. That, among many other things, should make us marvel, should make us love him. John does. John's like, do you know what he did? This is what he knew. And, and in light of what he knew, this is what he did. Knowing that he came from God and was returning, knowing that he was going to depart, he loved us to the end. You know what he did? <laughs> he, get, he got up and laid aside his garments, just as he had laid aside power, infinite wisdom, knowledge. Laid it aside to do life on earth as one of us. Yes, I believe he is exalted now, glorified. He's not mortal now. 
He's not, he has not limited himself now. He is now in his glory. As a matter of fact, I have two mental pictures, two separate different mental pictures of two advents. I even believe he looks different from one to the other. The, the Christ who came and rode humbly on a donkey's colt was a plain guy. Plain. I mean plain, regular, not glorified, not awesome, not even beautiful, not even pretty. He wasn't a pretty guy with a beard. He had beautiful eyes. He was regular. People would look and go, what, that guy? There was no form, no physical form or comeliness that we should desire him. Those are the words of the prophet Isaiah. But I submit to you that it's completely different now. In his glorified state, John makes an attempt to describe him in Revelation chapter 1. John said, and then I saw one. The same John, who was a teen, chosen to be a disciple. He's an elderly man doing hard time on a penal colony, on a rock in the Mediterranean, busting rocks on Patmos. For the testimony, the empire wanted to shut him up. That didn't work out too well for the empire because Christ revealed himself to him on Patmos. He was given the revelation. But John, John who had been a teen and absolutely had his heart captured by Christ, sees him glorified. He goes, I saw one like unto the Son of Man. And then he describes him. Or he makes an attempt. And he is glorious. Yeah, he's the author of all beauty. He's the one behind all symmetry. He, he's the one. To see him now, man. Oh, we will see him. I long to see him. I think that's enough because the room is warm. You've used all the air. <laughs> You've used all the oxygen, and I'm watching eyes do like slot machines. <laughs> and you're freaking me out. You're looking... Some of you are looking demonic. There's some kind of weird manifestation going on. You know who you are. I get it. We've, we've done enough. So look, pray with me, please. Just do a prayer with me. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us through the word of God come to know the God of the word. Help us to know the one who was the word who put on flesh and dwelt among us. Know him and be captured by him, apprehended by him. Help us not to be tweeny men and tweeny women. I mean, help us not to be somewhere in between this kingdom of God and the world. Lord, help us to turn our backs on that and be willing to embrace the hate. Now, hate is a family value. And in this family, the family of God, we love and we hate and we are loved and we are hated. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us to embrace the hate and may the persecution of the days in which we live and even the rising tide of persecution Provide an opportunity to put devotion on display. The kind of devotion that all through the history of the church has won the public. 
the kind of devotion on display like in communist China where they have been so severe against the church and yet the church is about to break 300 million. It's always been that way. It'll be that way here. And as the madness increases and the persecution with it, we pray that you'd help us to put devotion to you on display in such a way that makes the masses want to know who it is that so captured our hearts. Yeah. May our hearts be captured. Reveal yourself to us, Lord, in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.